listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 6 this week, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there, and uh, if not, it'll be on the, on the screen. I've shared before that I am a, a fan of, of Mr. Tolkien and his books, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, a uh, fan of C.S. Lewis. Uh, not the, the theological books, but the Chronicles of Narnia. The theology books are a little heavy for me, but I stick with the Chronicles, right? You guys can read Mere Christianity and all those things, but I'll stick with Narnia. But uh, one of the things about Tolkien, I, I, I didn't get into Tolkien until actually in seminary. Uh, everyone had read Lord of the Rings growing up, but I never did. But when the movies came out, I, I was committed that I was gonna read the books and then see the movies, which I did. Loved them both. Uh, but I will, here's my confession time to you. For some of you Tolkien purists, this is gonna be heresy, but I'm sorry, it's gonna be blasphemous. Uh, there were sections of Tolkien that I skipped, that I skimmed, right? And it was, it was the songs. If you're, if you're a Tolkien person, you know what I'm talking about. One of the genius of, of Tolkien was that he created his own languages and he created his own scripts for his languages, which just made, made him that much better. But what he would do is he would, in, in his books, is he would have a like two and a half page song in Elfish. And I'm like, not reading it. Don't speak Elfish. Barely speak English. And so I would skip Part, the part that really made Tolkien uh, the genius that he was. And the reason why I did that is because it would be, you know, he would drop these songs and these poems right in the middle of like an action sequence. Like there's, it's just getting good. And all of a sudden there's a song and I'm like, skip. And I go to the, because I wanted the action. I want to see what Bilbo was going to do or Frodo was going to do or whatever. I thinking about that, that's what we do with texts like this one today. I mean, it's about to get good. There's gonna be action. We're going plagues. We're going Red Sea. We're going all this stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. But right as we're about to get into it, Moses drops himself, a, not a song, but it's like Tolkien's song. This, like, what is this doing here? Get me back to the action. And, and for some reason, God, before he is going to talk about deliverance and before he's going to rescue his people, he has Moses put this section in. And, and it's important for us to remember that all scripture is inspired. Now, it may not be all equally inspiring, but it is all equally inspired. And Peter says that men were moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. And so that means that God moved on Moses to put this text here for us today. And because he did, I think we should unpack it and not skip it. To the action. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this, this, this little section of scripture that most of you, let's be honest, you, you, you skipped it to get to the action. But there's some, some good truths for us here that I think God wants us to get in chapter six, verses 14. And we're going to go all the, way, all the way to chapter seven, verse seven. And so here's what I want to do. I want to unpack this, but I want to remind us also so that when we come to passages like this, there's not just the part we skip. Just kind of build our, our Bible study methods just, or just a reminder for some of us maybe. Remember, when you come to the scripture, there's, there's a couple different things you wanna ask. Number one, what did it mean to the original audience? What, what did it mean when it was written to the people it was written? Because these are real people that are going through real circumstances. They're really living their lives. And there's a reason why Moses, under the inspiration of God, writes this. And if you can understand what's going on in the original context, it'll un, it'll, the, package, the passage will open up to you living 
three, 4,000 years later. So that's step one. Step two is to say, okay, what are the theological implications of this text? What does it teach me about God? What does it teach me about me? What does it teach me about the world, the lost world? What does it teach me about Christ? Is there any implication on the work of Christ? Living this side of the cross, how does this text, this little sliver of text, fit into the big story of what God has been doing or what God is doing? And, and based on original audience and what it means there and what are the theological implications, we can build principles that apply to 2021 Savannah, Georgia, SCAD student, Goldstream, retiree, high school student, whatever, based on those principles and we can apply them to our context. So hopefully I'll be able to kind of do that for us today with this skipped section of scripture. Where we've been, if you're a guest, you're, you're new, you've been, you know, missed a couple weeks, uh, Moses has been called by God to deliver the people of Israel. The first 40 years of his life, he was a somebody living in Egypt. He was big time. He was in the best schools, eating the best food in the palace. The next 40 years of his life, he wasn't a somebody. He was a nobody living in the wilderness as a shepherd, taking care of sheep. And so now we're in the last 40 years of his life where he's gonna learn that God can take a nobody and use him uh, when he realizes that he's a nobody and he make him a somebody. So that's where we've been going. And where we saw last time was Moses went to the people, the people believed. And then he went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh didn't believe. And then the people didn't believe anymore. And so it left it at a bad spot, but we saw God was gonna do something. And so let me, let me read our text uh, in its entirety. It's super thrilling. You guys are gonna love it. Um, but we're gonna unpack it and see what God has for us. So we're gonna, let me get a running head start in verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And here's, here's where the song starts. These are the heads of the father's house. The sons of Reuben, firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. These are the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimi by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, Uziel, the years of life of Kohath being... 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. That's a real nice one. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took his the wife uh, took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elizaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashan, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar's son took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the, Le of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. And on that day, when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. 
How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like a God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you. Your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt, Bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, and they did just as the Lord commanded. Moses was 80, Aaron 83. Exciting. That's your memory verse for this week, right? All those names. But why? I mean, again, we were about to get into the action. Pause. Bunch of names. And then repeat what they just had said. Why does Moses do this? Some of the scholars out there would actually say it's not Moses. And they, the more of the liberal scholars would say, see, Moses didn't write this. This is proof positive. This is a different author. Uh, they ignore the fact that Jesus said that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And so they'll argue all different things. Let me show you first and foremost that Moses wrote this and that it's not by accident that this is here on purpose. That he actually frames this section in a way so that you cannot miss it. He uses a literary device. We've seen it before. All the English teachers get excited when I mention these things. Uh, he uses a chiastic structure, which is a, basically a repetition of literary, it's a literary device that repeats ideas to kind of frame an argument, to frame a big idea. And it usually for, has a structure of like an A, B, B, A, where the A's are the same ideas, the B's are the same idea, or an A, B, C, B, A, you know, this is what poet, they do, you see in poetry. Moses uses this structure in this little section, he, his structure is A, B, C, C, B, A, right? And, and the idea here is this, and we don't have time to unpack it real quick, but he repeats himself, verses 28 and 30 are the same as verses 10 and 12. What does he say in 10 and 12? Moses said to the Lord, I am uncircumcised lips, blah, 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 28 and 30. They're not gonna listen to me, I have uncircumcised lips. B, verse 27, he says, it was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It says, and again, in, in verse 13, uh, it was Moses and Aaron that God used to speak in Egypt. In verse 25 and verse 14, very similar. These are the houses of the clan to this. Verse 25, this is the house of the clan. He's framing the idea to show you this is not just some random haphazard thing. I've put it there on purpose for multiple reasons, but it is, it's intentional that God has it here for them and it has it here for us. Right, and so that's what we're gonna we're gonna kind of unpack. And if you kind of study this whole genealogy, what you're gonna see is several different things. One is this: there is a focal point of of who he's talking about here. Okay, it's it only gets to three of the tribes. He starts with Reuben. He talks about Reuben and his sons. And he gets to Simeon. He's the second born of Israel. He gets to his sons. When he comes to Levi, who's the third born, he doesn't just go to the sons. He goes to the grandsons and then to the great grandsons and then to the great great grandsons. He expands on the tribe of Levi. Right. So in verse sixteen, for instance, these are the sons of Levi: Gershon, Kohath, Merari. And then you get in verse, uh, in verse 18, you have the sons of Kohath, who are one of the sons of him. And Kohath has a son named Amran. Amran takes his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister. This means he married his aunt, which is kind of nasty. All right, Auntie Mama is her name, right? But it's illegal now, and it was illegal actually after the Pentateuch came out. But his dad marries his aunt and has Moses and has Aaron. And instead of focusing then on Moses, it focuses on Aaron. And you get Aaron's sons, 
right? Aaron took his wife and he has a couple sons, Abihu, Eleazar, Nabab, and Ithmar. And then it focuses on Aaron's grandson. He's got a grandson named Phidias. It, it zooms in, it ignores Reuben, it ignores Simeon, and it zooms in on Levi and specifically the house of Aaron, who is a descendant of Levi. And so the question is this, again, going back to our Bible study methods, what did it mean for the original audience, right? Why Moses and Aaron's clan? Well, for one, he's highlighting the authority that God has given to Moses and Aaron twice in this text. He says, this is the Moses and Aaron that God used. This is the Moses and Aaron God used. So he's validating to a group of people who are wandering around the wilderness, these are my guys, These are the guys that I speak through. These are the guys I use. That's number one. But number two, you gotta ask the question, what was the significance of the Levites? Because God is clearly highlighting the Levites here. And if you grew up in church, you know, this is kind of like the easy answer for you. But we have a lot of people didn't grow up in church, right? You don't know anything about kind of who the Levites were. So let me kind of unpack that for you. The Levites in the Old Testament were basically in charge of corporate worship. They were the ones who were in charge of the tabernacle and then later on the temple. Everything that had to do with corporate worship in Israel went through the Levites. And so when they all finally get to the land, remember they wander for 40 years, Moses dies, Joshua takes them to the land, they start conquering the land, and then finally they get their allotted places where God has given them. Here's a map of that. Here's where all the tribes go. You know, there's Judah in the south, Simeon, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, his Joseph's son, Ephraim. Everybody gets a spot, except there's one name missing. What name's missing from this map? Very good. Some of you are paying attention. Levi. There's no Levi. What happened to Levi? He's not off, you know, making jeans in Saudi Arabia or something, right? He's not, he doesn't get land. Here's why. Joshua highlights what the, the Pentateuch says. But the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. Yahweh was their inheritance, just as he said to them. Their job, their blessing was that they get front row of serving God, of of being the middlemen between Israel and their God. They were in charge of corporate worship, the tribe of Levi. And within that huge tribe of Levi, there was a little sliver, a little family, the family of Aaron. And if you came from Aaron's family, you weren't just a Levite, you became one of the priests. The priests were actually the ones doing the offerings. The priests were the ones doing the sacrifices. They were the one making atonement. They'd go inside the holy place. They'd go, the high priest would go into the holy of holies once a year. Only one guy from the tribe of Aaron, right? So their job was kind of the, that sacrifice worship. And all the Levites are kind of a lower class, but they still were involved in, in worship and writing songs and, you know, all, all these things. It was all about corporate worship for them. It was a big deal for these folks that are wandering around the wilderness with the tabernacle. So what does this teach us about God? This this passage is a reminder. Before he talks about deliverance and redeeming, what is God redeeming for? This is not God looking down saying, oh, there's a bunch of people that are sad. Let me help them. This is about God rescuing and redeeming a people for himself. He is calling them to himself. I will be their God. They will be my people. I am gonna write my law on their hearts eventually. 
And so he is calling them to be set apart. He is gonna make a nation that is called to be distinct from all the other nations of the world. And so he's gonna give them his law and his law is gonna have all these rules that this is gonna make you distinct. No eating shrimp, no eating bacon. Praise God, those rules are not in effect anymore. But that was, those are things that made them distinct. This is how you're gonna worship. You're gonna have these priests. They're gonna wear these robes. They're gonna have these stones. You're gonna have this umen and thumen. They're gonna do all these things. This is how you're gonna approach me distinct. The goal was that they would be distinct worshipers and that there was order. You often hear today, well, I don't, you know, I don't believe in organized religion. Well, both the old and the new Testament is far from organic. Are there, is there freedoms of what we do on a Sunday morning? What kind of songs we sing and the style of worship? Yes. But there are elements that God said, the preaching of the word. Yes. Prayers. Yes. Lord's table, baptism. Yes. These are things that, that God has, has orchestrated for his church. And, and there's some freedoms around those, but this is how we worship when we gather. And that's the way it was for them. They are to be distinct worshipers, people who, who are holy, who are set apart. And so before we talk about rescuing and deliver and flood, and, I mean, and, and Red Sea and plagues, he's reminding them, he's reminding us, this is all about you being mine and me being yours. And so in light of that, and then kind of the full revelation of what will he have living this side of the cross, what does this mean for us? Because how many Levites we got out there? None, right? There's no Levites that I know of. And quite honestly, we don't need them. Why? Because when Jesus died, the veil that separated the holy place and the most holy place was torn open and that we were invited in. There's no more need for a go-between. You don't need a Levite. You don't need a guy in a funny robe and a funny hat with funny stones on it. You don't need any of that. And Peter tells us why. Because you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood. He says later in verse nine, you are a chosen race. He's talking to the dispersed church now, not just just one church, the dispersed church, that you and I are a chosen race, that we are, notice, a royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. You know why we don't need priests anymore? You know why we don't need Levites? Because you are the priests. You are. And not just any ordinary priest. You are a royal priest. The Levites were not royal priests. You know that? Judah was the royal tribe, not the tribe of Levi. You're distinct. You are a royal priest. So that means me and you, my spiritual name is Prince Father Bill because I'm royalty and I'm a priest and my name is Bill. So that, what is your spiritual name? You can put it on Facebook later. Everyone can comment on it, right? Princess so-and-so, you know, Joni, I don't know, right? That, that's the idea. You and I are his priests and you're his children. So you're royalty. And how does that all that take place? What, what makes you a priest? What makes me a priest? The same thing, ironically, that made Levi. What made Levi a Levite? What made Levites, the Levites, Levites? Who was their daddy? That made them Levites. Whoever their dad was. What makes us priests? Who's your daddy? Not your physical dad, but your spiritual father, your heavenly father. See, Jesus teaches that we have one of two dads. Your father is the devil or your father is his father. 
And those who are, have God as their father, he makes very clear who those are. All who received him, what does that mean? Those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the privilege to become children of God. It has nothing to do with the physical. Notice, not who were born, not a blood, not of the will of the flesh, but a will of God. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are born again, you are father or sister or whatever, your royal highness, Joni, you are a priest. Has nothing to do with where your family is, has nothing to do with how much Bible you know, has nothing to do with your male or female. If you are in Christ, you are his holy, royal priesthood. And what does that mean? What, is, what, do, what, is that, what do we do now? We put on our collars. We got collars for everyone as you leave. Take it to lunch, right? No, here's what it means. Peter tells us that you are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. There's a worship element. And then he says that you are to proclaim the one who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. There's a worship and there's a proclamation. And worship is not just singing, although it is part of singing. We offer, Hebrews says, a sacrifice of praise. So your singing is worship. But more importantly, it's not, it's not some, you're bringing some offering to the altar. No, no, no. Romans 12 says, because of the mercies of God, you present yourself as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable. Your worship is you. It's you offering you. I am yours. I am denying myself. I am taking up my cross and I am following you. Colossians 3 says that whatever you do in word or deed, do it all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is your worship. And when you do that, you're proclaiming something. So when you're thankful and you're cheerful and you're content and you're kind and you're generous, you're proclaiming something. You're proclaiming something. Just like you're proclaiming something when you're grumpy, when you're critical, when you're cynical, you're proclaiming something there. Your life, it matters because you are a priest. You're a representative of something. You are to be distinct. And notice I said distinct, not weird. I'm not talking weird. Some of you can be weird if you want to be weird. We're not talking about being weird. We're talking about being distinct, set apart, holy. It has nothing to do with whether you eat bacon or anything now. But here's what it does mean. It means if you're single and you're dating, that you date in a way that's distinct from, from everyone else. That means, that guys, at the end of the night, you stay at your place and she stays at her place because you are distinct. Because purity matters. It means when your boss says, I want you to do this, 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 and this, you say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, and you do it to the best of your ability because you're doing it for Jesus, not them. That's worship that proclaims something. It means you're a high school student, you're a college student, you're online and your class is online and you're taking a test and it would be super easy to have another laptop right here and cheat and no one would ever know, but because you're a priest, you're not gonna do that. It's better to get a C, which means complete, y'all, than to cheat and get a B. C for complete. Don't get you the Hope Scholarship, but you get you done. It means if someone hurts you, if someone wounds you, if someone gossips about you, if someone slanders you, that you're not going behind them and doing the same and getting back, that you forgive and you release because you're a priest and you're distinct. And I can go on and on and on, but the point is this. God has called you to be his Levite 
his royal priesthood, that you are his representative wherever you go. This is why when we say go be the church, that's what we're talking about. That you go and you let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And what happens? Your father is glorified. That's proclaiming him. That's what your job is. That's why this is not all there is to it. Go and be the church. Go and be a priest. Your royal highness, you're his. See why texts like this, when you understand them in the context of the whole Bible, they matter. They matter. It's not just the song that you skip. That's just one observation. So you gotta ask the question, how am I doing as a priest? How am I proclaiming? What am I proclaiming? Am I proclaiming me? Am I proclaiming a political party? Am I proclaiming a football team? Am I proclaiming him? We proclaim him, right? Here's another observation. Uh, Again, one that we don't grasp as much, but they might. Verse 16 uh, he, he highlights, these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. So Levi has three boys, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Sound like good science fiction names, right? But to the, that's what they sound like to us. To them, they actually mean something. Because here's what's going on when this book is written to this audience. They are wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, and here's what that looks like. So they're following a pillar of cloud by day that God is in, and at night a pillar of fire. And, and it just walks around, and at some points this thing stops, and when it stops, they know, okay, God wants us to stop. And what do they do? They set up this tabernacle that's right in the middle of the, of the camp. You got three tribes on all sides of it, in the shape of a cross, ironically, by the way, with the, with the tabernacle right in the middle. And the cloud would rest on it in the day and the pillar of fire at night. And they would stay there as long as the cloud would. And then eventually the cloud would go, bloop, and start floating up. And they'd be like, moving day. And they would come in and they'd pick up the tabernacle and they'd pick up their tents and they'd walk. Keep walking. And they would just walk until it stopped again. 40 years they did this. And what, who were the ones that were supposed to set up and break down and set up and break down and set up and break down and set up for 40 years? That tabernacle. You know who? The Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merari. And if you read the book of Numbers, uh, which most of you have never, um, it they unpacks this. It shows that that's why these people would have known who does this. And here's a picture of kind of the Old Testament. This is just a rendering of the Old Testament tabernacle in the wilderness. You see that it's a very... You know, it's a very transient uh, until they build the actual temple in Jerusalem. But you have the holy place and the most holy place inside that tent. You see the altar out front. You see the, there's a basin for washing. You see there's curtains around. You see there's poles. There's only one way in, one way out. That's because there's only one way to God, the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one entrance. All these curtains, all these guys working. You can see all the tents around. There, each one of these groups was specifically had a, a job in that role, right? Um, so the Gershonites... They were in charge of the, of the curtains, the outside, and the curtains on the inside. Um, the Kohathites, they were kind of the interior designers. They, that big altar right there and, and that basin, and then there's elements inside the holy place. The Ark of the Covenant, they were in charge of that until Indiana Jones got it later. Um, they were in charge of the candlestick, the bread, the table of showbread. They were in charge of all that. The Merari, they were the industrial engineers. They were in charge of the tent poles and, and, and all the, you know, digging holes and making sure they were in and making sure it was stable. That was their job. Each family was assigned a task. And then when they had the tabernacle actually turned to the temple, then they had different tasks in that. But here's the point. Here's what we learn about God. That in the kingdom, every little job matters. Because God is the one who assigns it. There is nothing that is done 
in the tabernacle and now in the church that is insignificant. You give a cup of water to anyone in the name of Jesus, you've done it to him. There's no little people in the kingdom. Every little thing matters. Well, it's seen and not seen. You didn't see the people this morning that were washing out the coffee pots, but you're enjoying it, aren't you? You're thankful that it wasn't last week's coffee, aren't you? You don't see what's going on right back in the back right now with people watching cameras of our kids, with people guarding the hallways, with people singing and teaching your, your children. You don't see it, but it matters. It matters. And there's a tendency, just because we're human, to move in one of two kind of fallacies. There's an inferiority complex. I'm not good enough, I'm a nobody. Or there's a superiority complex. Look how good I am. Look how important I am, Right? The priests can't say, well, look how important we are. We got the altars and we have the animals and we have the sacrifices. Because if there ain't no Merari and there are no Gersonites, there's no sacrifices. At the same time, we can't be uh, a Merari that says, oh, I'm so sick of digging holes and you know, putting poles in holes and ropes to poles. I wanna be that guy. I'm so sick of this. I'm not important. I'm not, I don't matter because I don't get to be out front. You can't do that. And living this side of the cross, the way the apostle Paul handles it, he uses the image of a body. He says, the foot cannot say to the hand, I'm not part of the body because I'm a foot. I mean, everyone loves a hand. Hands can wave. Charismatics don't raise their feet, they raise their hands. If I'm a you know, Gen Y, I can text with my hands. If I'm a baby boomer, I can point at people and complain, Right? Hands get it all. I mean, everyone washes their hands. All they do to feet is put socks on them and we smell and we hide them. That's inferiority complex. He also says, the eye cannot say to the foot, I don't need you, foot. Because look at me, I'm an eye. I can see everything. I can bat my eyelashes. I can do all these things. I don't need you, foot. Yeah, you ain't going nowhere without the feet. So you can sit in your chair all day long and look around, but you're not going, you're not moving without the feet. So don't think you're all that. The point is this, you need it all. The seen and the unseen. I don't know what a thyroid does. Never seen one, don't even know what it looks like. But I know if you grew up in Savannah, yours is jacked up. It's the water, it's the, the you know, whatever. The sugar refinery gets you, I don't know. But I know this, most of y'all have jacked up thyroids because you, you live in Savannah and you gotta take medicine to fix it because it's not functioning properly. I don't see it. I don't know what it is, but I know if it's not working, it messes everything up. That is the body. If the Gershonites are like, we're sick of this, doing this. If the Camarari are, we're sick of doing this, then it doesn't function. The body matters. And the kind of New Testament application is this. Whatever God's made you, a foot, a hand, a thyroid, a myoid bone, whatever it is, do it and do it well because that's what he made you. You're distinct. You're unique. That's how he's wired you. That's how he's gifted you. If you're a hand and you're sitting here, then we're missing a hand. If you're a thyroid, we're having to take medicine because you're all jacked up and not doing what you're supposed to do. I don't know what it is, but you are called to do it. And, and there's, a, there's a, a, a vertical aspect to this text where we're created to worship God, we are called to God, but there's a horizontal aspect too where you're called to God so that you're called to each other. For them, it was the, the, the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, the temple. For us, it is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. You are a part of it. 
You have a role here, and it's not about you. Too many people come to church. What are they going to do for me? I don't feel fed. I don't feel this. I don't like this. What do they have for my kids? What I, that's a wrong question. It's not what can we do for you. It's how do I serve the body? There's 59 one another commands in the New Testament. 59. Now, like 10 of them are love one another. But these, and these have nothing to do with like fleeo morality and all these morality stuff. This is just how we relate to each other. As the people of God, be at peace with one another, wash each other's feet, love one another, devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony, accept, instruct, greet, serve, carry burdens, be patient, be kind, forgive, speak, submit, encourage one another, build up one another, spur one another to love and good deeds, confess to one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another, be of the same mind, seek good, blah, 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 on and on. You're called to him because we're called to each other. And this is why we're, we have people that commit ourselves to the local body. It's not that our church is better than others. You're just saying, I'm in, I'm gonna serve this group of people until God calls me elsewhere. That's why we do church membership. That's why we have a family meeting. You play a role. And if you're a hand or a thyroid that's out of, you know, out of whack, the rest of the body is all jacked up. We need you as, as visible or invisible as you may be. God's given you things that we need. Even if you're just a fingernail. We need fingernails. You ever hurt your fingernail? Hurts the whole body. Stub that big toe. Some of you have big toes. You're like, I don't want to be seen and I don't want to be smelled. But we need the big toe for balance. And so that you can move. I don't know what it is. I don't know what God's called you to do. I just think you should do it. Even the Levites. You know, the Levites were super dependent on the people of Israel. You know why? Because they didn't have food without them. They didn't have land. They, they got little cities here and there, but they didn't have swaths of land where they could grow crops and, and animals and stuff. They were completely dependent on the people bringing their tithes and their offerings so that they could feed their families. And what ended up happening was when the people stopped providing for the Levites, guess what happened? The Levites had to leave the public worship to go make ends meet and the whole nation fell apart because the body wasn't functioning. And that's what we need for you to do what God has wired you, gifted you, or just filling in the gaps, right? That's what God has called us to. You're important, you're needed, and you can contribute to the kingdom. And, and, and we want you to be part of that. Whatever that is, praying, giving, loving, serving, serving the kids on Tuesdays and Thursdays, serving in the back and singing to them, making coffee, being a deacon, being a community group leader, whatever. But you're, you're called to something and you gotta figure that out, what God is doing. One more observation real quick. When you study this list, again, a bunch of names to us. If you do a little research, some of these names pop up again. And what you see is some of these guys are good eggs and some of them are bad eggs. Okay, Moses and Aaron, for the most part, good eggs. I mean, Moses got a little temper, so he's gonna get dealt with because you're not gonna get to go into land. Aaron can be fickle at times, but for the most part, those are good eggs. Phineas, the great, I mean, the grandson of, uh, of Aaron, he's a, he's a great guy. I mean, he becomes high priest for Joshua. There's one incident uh, in, in, in his life. It's really an interesting uh, passage in the book of Numbers. The people of God have intermarried with the Moabites, which God specifically said, don't do this. And, and, and because they have and they're taking Moabite wives, God has sent a plague and 24,000 Hebrews have died because of this. And one brazen dude, I mean, this guy's just brazen. He has his little new Moabite honey and he walks right by Moses and right by Aaron and right by Phineas and all the people. All these people are dying because of this. And this guy just going and walks, strolls on by and goes into his little tent and Phineas is standing there. And he's like, get, 
He looks around. He grabs himself a spear and he follows him in and he all, and he shish kebabs them both. And you know what happens? The plague stops because God says, he was jealous for my name. He was jealous for my people, for my worship. And he stopped the plague. Phineas, warrior, poet, priest, shish kebab-esque. But he was jealous for the name of God. He was a good egg. Now Aaron's sons were bad eggs because they end up in the book of Leviticus. They, they get creative with the censer and they're trying to offer incense. They're like, let's try it with a little, you know, a little of this uh, incense, a little bit different, right? And they throw it on there and fire comes out and consumes them. They don't regard the Lord as holy. And so God burns them. And Aaron's standing there and he just, he can't do anything but watch. Bad eggs. Sons of Korah, they're, they're, they become significant later on in this book where they rebel against Moses. They go to Moses and be like, who are you and Aaron that you should be in charge? We're of Levites. We're just as important as you. We don't need you to be in charge of everything. And Moses says, well, let God sort this out. If God has appointed me and Aaron or you guys. The next day, God sorts it out and the land opens and swallows all the sons of Korah up and then closes on them. God has spoken. But you got good eggs, you got bad eggs. But here's the point. In the end, they're really all bad eggs. Because <laughs> Moses is broken, Aaron's broken. Their prophet and their priest, both sinful. And even the best king of Israel ever, David, broken. Man after God's own heart, needed, needed a savior. And, and this is the, the point, when you put this in the entire Bible and the, and the story of what God is doing, the narrative of the whole scripture, is that we needed a better prophet than Moses. Moses was one of the greatest prophets ever, but we needed one better. And, and Aaron was a great high priest, but we needed a better high priest. And David was a great king, but we needed a better king. And you know what offices that Jesus fulfills in the New Testament? The prophet, the priest, and the king, right? Moses was a prophet and Jesus was one that was like him. But the writer of the Hebrews says he's, that Jesus is infinitely better than Moses. Moses was just a servant in the house. Jesus is a son. Moses is a servant. Jesus built the house. And Aaron, as good of a high priest as he was, the problem with Aaron is they had to keep making sacrifices over and over and over and over every day, not just for the people, but for themselves. They'd have to offer sacrifice for themselves and then they have to offer it for everybody. And every year and every year and every year and every year. That's why we needed someone not from the tribe of Levi. We needed someone of the order of priesthood of Melchizedek, the king priest. And what Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek is he offers a sacrifice one time and then it says he sits down. Priests didn't sit down because their job was continuous. But Jesus sat down, why? Because he was done. One sacrifice for all time, his blood for all of us. And he's a better king because he will rule forever and ever, sinless, perfect. The root of Jesse, the son of David, but greater than David. The whole Bible points to him. This passage, yeah, Levites were okay, but Jesus is greater. And here's my point. We don't put our hope in men and women. We don't put our hope in churches. We don't put our hope in religious institutions. We don't put our hope in us. We put our hope in the one who is perfect is in Jesus Christ, is God our Father, It is in our triune God. That is where our hope is. And I was reminded of this this week, just tragically reading about 
just the devastation that Ravi Zacharias and some of you know his ministry left behind. Tragic, the effects of sin. And, 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 and it just made me think, my goodness, how broken are we? Right, how broken are we? Here's a guy that God used to reach hundreds and thousands of people for Jesus and he left a train wreck behind him because of his sin. And it's an encouragement to me on one side because your sin doesn't disqualify you from, from, from serving God and God using you. But at the same time, it's a warning. Don't put your hope in men because the best of men is men at best. And if you're putting your hope in this church or this elder team or these pastors or me or this church or your community group or your spouse or your teachers or your parents, you are going to be disappointed. You will be because they are just men and women. Redeemed, rescued, can be used, but, but they will disappoint you, right? You put your hope in Christ and Christ alone. That's, that's where we rest. It's not about us, it is about him. And that's how chapter seven really ends, right? It's just a repetition of what he said. It's like the third time. The Lord said to Moses, I have made you God and Pharaoh. Verse two, I will command you and you will do this. Verse three, I will harden his heart. I will multiply signs. Verse four, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will lay my hands. Verse five, Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand. And so what did Moses and Aaron do? They obeyed him. See, it's not about what you can do for God. Too many of you are trying to do what you can do for God. It has nothing to do with what you can do for God. It's all about what God can do through you. Taking a nobody who realizes they're a nobody and doing something with that. We are the bride of Christ. Now, has he made you a priest? Absolutely. Has he made you holy? Has he made you royalty? Absolutely. But it's so his name is great. So you today, you go with a better genealogy than Moses. Your genealogy goes back to God, your father, because of the work of Christ. And it's proven and demonstrated by the power of his spirit in you. You are his priest. You are called to him and you are called to each other. And still, you put your hope in him. That's, that's what this song is ultimately pointing us to. This portion that we might skip. This is a reminder of those things. So here's what we're gonna do. Let's kind of move to worship. We're gonna remember, uh, basically what the Levites were doing constantly, we're gonna remember the table. And if you, if you uh, came in and you didn't get a little communion cup packet, you just raise your hand and one of our ushers will, will get one to you. Um, again, we're gonna look at the Passover in just a few weeks. This is a really a, Jesus is kind of repointing and redirecting the Passover meal instituted at the 10th plague, um, pointing to that which Christ has done, the fulfillment of all that he has done. Um, and, and when we take this, we remember, I'm a priest. I am his, I am called to the body. And so if you can kind of carefully not rip this thing apart, hopefully we're used to these things by now. If you're a follower of Christ and you're, whether you're a member of our church or not, we invite you to participate. Uh, this is your remembering of him. This is what he has done for you. And let me remind you what the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And the bread would have been, this was a celebration of the Passover for them. And, and Jesus is showing the significance. The bread would have been unleavened. Leaven pictured sin. 
and, the, and throughout the scripture and how it spreads. And, and the spread would have been unleavened like Jesus's body, which is sinless. And it probably had uh, holes in it because of, it was like matzah. And it pictured that Jesus was pierced. And so he gives them the bread and he says, this is my body, which is for you, right? This is one sacrifice once for all done. My body for you. You don't have to keep re-sacrificing over and over and over and over and over. No, my body sacrificed one time. It is finished. It is done. Now we remember it. That's what we're doing. Remembering what he has done, right? This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. He said, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness, but the blood in bulls and goats was not enough because they had to keep doing it and keep doing it and it never satisfied. So Jesus offers his blood as the Passover lamb, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and it's done. And he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here's why. Here's, this is awesome how it connects to the rest of this, of what God's doing. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, what are you doing? You're proclaiming the Lord's death. What does Peter say? We're, proclaim, we're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. This is part of proclaiming. This is part of being a priest. You proclaim his death until he comes. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Why don't you stand and we'll, we'll sing and I'll pray. Father, I pray as we just sing, as we offer a sacrifice of praise, that this would just be the start of us really being your sacrifice, that we would be laying down our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, as your priests, distinct, letting our light shine so that people may see our good works and glorify you who are in heaven. Be glorified in the way we remember, the way we proclaim Christ's name.